Welcome to a history of the Space Race Podcast, Episode 79, N1L3 Cancelled. Today I cover the end of the Space Race. The end of the Space Race comes not with Apollo 11, but the end of Sergei Korolev's legacy and his N1L3 lunar landing program for the Soviet Union in May 1974. I mark the end of the space race here in 1974 and not with Apollo 11 in 1969 for one major reason. The space race, in its narrowest terms, was about landing men on the moon first. By that definition, the space race was over in July 1969 with Apollo 11. But the space race also has a broader definition in which it was merely a competition between the Soviet Union and the United States to demonstrate engineering, technological, scientific, economic, and industrial prowess in space. Under this broader definition, the space race was really more of a tit-for-tat contest. One nation launches the first satellite, so the other tries to launch the first man into space. One launches the first man into space, so then the other aims to perform the first EVA in space. One performs the first EVA in space, so the other tries to perform the first docking or the first crew transfer in space. Under the broader definition, the space race doesn't end until one side decides to stop engaging in the tit-for-tat. And that happens here in 1974 with the cancellation of the Soviet Union's moon landing program. Now, you can legitimately point out that a Soviet moon landing at this point would not really be a tat to the United States tit, because the United States already landed on the moon. It had landed on the moon six times. But a Soviet moon landing after 1974 when NASA's Apollo program had effectively come to a close and there would be no further moon landings, would undoubtedly have sparked some sort of response by the United States, if only to match Soviet capabilities by restoring the American ability to land on the moon. Moreover, if the Soviet Union had achieved a manned moon landing, it would not have ended there. The Soviet Union would have come up with some way to best the American moon landings. That could have been in duration, accomplishments, or something else. Indeed, Vasily Mishin had already drawn up such plans under the modified N1L3M lunar landing program. So, in my estimation, the space race doesn't truly come to an end until the Soviet Union decided to stop trying to outbest the United States in space. Before I get to 1974, however, let me briefly recap where we left off with the N1L3 program. Back in episode 66, I covered how the first two N1 rocket launches ended in spectacular failure in the few months before NASA launched Apollo 11. The first test on February 21, 1969, ended when the N1 rocket crashed about 70 seconds after liftoff due to a cascading failure of the rocket's 30 first stage engines. The second test on July 3, 1969, was even more spectacular 
when the rocket exploded only 23 seconds into launch, when it was only 200 meters off the ground. The explosion, one of the largest artificial non-nuclear explosions in history, destroyed the launch pad. After the failure of the second N-1 launch, the Soviet Union's N-1-L-3 moon landing program was in trouble. In August 1969, Vasily Mishin was told that whether the N-1-L-3 program would continue depended on the results of the investigation into the failure of the second N-1 test. That investigation took a full year before a report was issued. And even after a report was issued, there were multiple theories about the reason for the N-1's failure. After the report was out, Mishin still had to make modifications to the N-1 rocket in response. The takeaway from all of this is that the third N-1 test launch would not take place for another two years, not until June 1971. In the meantime, while Mishin was working out the problems to restart testing on the N-1 rocket, he was making some progress on the L-3 spacecraft intended to land a cosmonaut on the moon. Here, Mishin also faced significant headwinds. Production of the L-3 spacecraft were significantly behind schedule by 1970. In total, the Soviet Union had ordered the construction of 16 L-3 spacecraft. Of those 16, only 7 had been manufactured, and only 3 were being ground-tested. Mishin's efforts to test the L-3 spacecraft complex was repeatedly hampered by limited resources and limited funding. Mishin's plan was to conduct a fully automated, unmanned moon landing before putting any cosmonaut on the L-3 spacecraft. The fully automated landing was to be achieved in phases. The first phase involved testing the L-3 spacecraft complex in Earth orbit. This would include both the LOK spacecraft used to ferry two cosmonauts to the moon and the LK lunar lander used to land one cosmonaut on the moon. This phase of the testing would have been equivalent to NASA's Apollo 9 mission which had similarly tested the command module and the lunar module in Earth orbit. The second phase would continue the testing by sending the L-3 complex around the moon. This would have been roughly equivalent to the Apollo 8 and Apollo 10 missions. Finally, in the third phase, Mission would perform a fully automated lunar landing. Due to limited funding, however, Mishin had to cancel the entire first phase of the testing. This meant that the first time the L-3 spacecraft complex would be flown, it would be flown directly to the moon. There would be no testing in Earth orbit. This was not promising in light of all the known quality control problems that the Soviet Union had in manufacturing its spacecraft. Mishin did try to work around this problem by getting approval for testing of the LK lunar lander in Earth orbit. Since the LOK was just a variant of the Soyuz 7K spacecraft already in use, presumably the performance of the LOK spacecraft was a bit of a better known factor. The LK lunar lander, on the other hand, had never been flown before, so it needed some sort of testing. 
Mishin got so far as performing several successful test flights of the LK lander in Earth orbit. The first test occurred on November 24, 1970. The LK lunar lander was launched into Earth orbit. Technically, this was a variant of the LK lunar lander known as the T2K, which lacked some of the components needed for landing, but it was effectively a test of the LK lander. Once in orbit, the Soviet Union designated the LK spacecraft as Cosmos 379. This generic designation, usually used for satellites, hid the true nature of the launch. So publicly, the Soviet Union was still able to continue to deny that it had ever been interested in landing cosmonauts on the moon. Even today, we know very little about this first test other than that the spacecraft's landing engine was successfully tested. A second test of the LK lunar lander occurred on February 26, 1971. After reaching orbit, the spacecraft was designated Cosmos 398, once again disguising this test as a mere satellite. The purpose of this test was to simulate an abort during landing. So the LK lander's descent engine was fired remotely and then jettisoned to fire a primary engine, which is what would happen during an abort. A third test launch of the LK occurred on August 12, 1971. Once in orbit, this spacecraft was designated Cosmos 434. This LK test involved a long burn of the lander's engines to fully qualify the engine, which the Soviet Union succeeded in doing. Although this LK spacecraft had received a Cosmos designation to hide the spacecraft's true purpose as with prior tests, the Soviet Union quietly and subtly revealed the purpose of Cosmos 434 a decade later, in 1981. At the time in 1981, Cosmos 434 was about to re-enter the atmosphere, and one place it was expected to fall over was Australia. Somehow, rumors began to emerge in the international media that Cosmos 434 might have a nuclear power source. That started to cause panic on the ground, particularly in Australia. To assuage these concerns, the Soviet Union surprisingly disclosed that Cosmos 434 was an experimental lunar cabin which had no power source. This disclosure of an experimental lunar cabin was the first time that the Soviet Union acknowledged that it had been working on equipment to send to the moon. Despite the successful testing of the LK spacecraft through the end of 1971, for Mission, it was becoming increasingly clear that the entire L-3 spacecraft complex for the lunar landing was horribly inadequate. When Sergei Korolev put together the design for the L-3 spacecraft complex in 1964, he was working within the limits of available technology and resources within the Soviet Union at that time. This resulted in a design that could only land one cosmonaut on the lunar surface for a maximum of six hours. Moving between the LOK spacecraft and the LK lander would also require a cosmonaut to perform an EVA. 
Mishin was never entirely comfortable with this bare-bones approach to a lunar landing. As it became increasingly clear in early 1969 that NASA was about to land on the moon, Mishin proposed revising the L3 design altogether to support up to three cosmonauts on the lunar surface. After the United States landed on the moon, Mishin began to put his proposal for an upgraded L3 onto paper. Since the United States had landed on the moon, it was now no longer worth landing on the moon with a bare-bones spacecraft. If the Soviet Union was going to land now, it would land with something that was better than the Apollo spacecraft. So, in 1970, Mishin began drawing up plans for what became known as the L-3M. The L-3M would consist of a modified L-O-K spacecraft and a modified lunar lander, the L-K-M. The L-O-K spacecraft would have a new power source, fuel cells. This was a necessary factor to ensure the availability of power for longer flights, something that NASA had figured out all the way back during the early days of the Gemini program, in which the Soviet Union was only attempting to develop now, some six years later. The LKM, meanwhile, would be capable of carrying more than one cosmonaut to the moon. The ability to actually use the L-3M depended heavily upon the success of the N-1 rocket. Remember that the N-1 rocket, as originally designed, was barely capable of launching the L-3 spacecraft complex. To launch the L-3M, the lift capability of the N-1 rocket had to be improved. Specifically, the upper stages of the N-1 had to be replaced with hydrogen-fueled rocket stages. Again, NASA had already figured this out and had spent considerable resources developing both the Centaur rocket and the S-4B rocket stages, both of which were powered by hydrogen. And once again, the Soviet Union was only figuring this out and starting development many years after the United States. In February 1971, the Soviet government asked the president of the Soviet Academy of Sciences Mstislav Keldesh, to review Mishin's plans for the revised N1-L3M lunar landing program. Mishin's plan still called for the use of the N1-L3 as originally designed, at least for the initial stages of the moon landing program. Since the Soviet Union had already sunk significant resources into the N1-L3 and the spacecraft and rocket were coming off the production line, it made no sense not to use them. So, Mishin's plan was to use the N1-L3 for fully automated flights around the moon and for a moon landing. The first manned landing would also still be conducted using the original N1-L3. There were, however, still significant concerns about whether the N1 rocket, as originally designed, would be capable of launching a manned L3 to the moon. To solve this problem, Mishin planned to rely on both Earth Orbital Rendezvous, and Lunar Orbital Rendezvous. Specifically, an N-1 rocket would be used to launch an unmanned L-3 spacecraft complex 
into Earth orbit. Then a separate rocket would carry the crew into orbit. This crew would have to rendezvous and dock with the L3 to transfer into the L3 spacecraft. The cosmonauts would then journey to the moon in the L3 spacecraft complex. Once in lunar orbit, one cosmonaut would take the LK lunar lander down to the moon's surface, while the other cosmonaut stayed in lunar orbit aboard the LOK, just as it was planned in Korolev's original mission profile. Once the lunar surface mission was complete, the cosmonaut in the LK lander would have to perform a lunar orbital rendezvous with the LOK before the cosmonauts use the LOK to come home. Only after the initial manned moon landings had occurred would the newer N1L3M come into play. The N1L3M would be used to allow for extended missions on the lunar surface and for a launch from the lunar surface that would allow a direct return to Earth, rather than relying upon lunar orbital rendezvous. This plan, though rather complicated, would mean that all the work put in so far to the original N1L3 program would not be thrown away entirely. The Soviet Union would use them to learn how to operate spacecraft in the lunar environment before bringing the L-3M to bear. In August 1971, Keldish and the commission he led completed their review of the N-1L-3 program and Mishin's proposal for the N-1L-3M. The commission totally rejected the use of the N-1L-3 for lunar landings, even for a fully automated, unmanned mission. The commission decided that the L-3 would be used only for lunar orbital missions, both manned and unmanned, but not any lunar landings. In other words, the L-3 had just been relegated to the role initially given to the Soyuz L-1 circumlunar spacecraft. The commission recommended that only missions proposed and upgraded L-3M would be used to perform any of the moon landing missions. The commission's decision to use only the L-3M for lunar landings would mean that the timeline for a landing of a Soviet cosmonaut on the moon had to inevitably be pushed out further into the future, since development of the L-3M was obviously far behind the L-3. This recommendation was possible because, for once, the timing for a moon landing was not dictated by internal or external political imperatives. Internally, Mishin was the only designer still trying to land on the moon. Vladimir Chelemy and others had long since vacated this area. Externally, the United States had already landed on the moon. Instead, the Soviet Union's only focus now was on quality. The Soviet Union would beat the United States by landing on the moon with a more capable spacecraft than Apollo, and that meant waiting for the L-3M. So, with the question of the spacecraft for the moon landing now settled, this brings me back to the other half of the equation. The N-1 rocket needed to launch the spacecraft to the moon. As I said earlier, the first two N-1 rocket launches had failed in the six months before NASA launched Apollo 11 
in July 1969. Both N-1 rockets failed during the first stage, when the rocket relied on 30 different rocket engines. So by 1970, Vasily Mishin appreciated the need to improve the N-1's first stage engines. Now, the story behind the N-1 rocket's first stage engines is incredibly important. So I am going to provide a recap. And this recap will require me to reach all the way back to episode 5, when I first introduced the main characters of the Soviet space industry. The engineer responsible for designing the rocket engines for the N-1's first stage was Nikolay Kuznetsov. If you will recall, Kuznetsov was originally a designer of jet engines. It was Sergei Korolev who convinced Kuznetsov to start working on a rocket engine fueled by cryogenic propellants, namely liquid oxygen and kerosene. Korolev recruited Kuznetsov because at the time, way back in 1959 and 1960, Valentin Glushko was the only other rocket engine designer in the Soviet Union. And Glushko rejected the idea of engines fueled by cryogenic propellants in favor of storable propellants, mainly unsymmetrical dimethylhydrazine, so that these rockets could be kept ready in missile silos, unlike Korolev's cryogenic propellants that would require large refrigeration units and long fueling times before a rocket could launch. The original engine that Nikolay Kuznetsov worked on for the N-1 rocket was known as the NK-15 engine. The manufacturing of the NK-15 engines suffered from some serious quality control problems. In an earlier episode, I mentioned that the Soviet Union only ground-tested two out of every six randomly selected NK-15 engines. With 30 engines in the first stage of the N-1 alone, and with a flaw in a single one of these capable of destroying the entire launch vehicle, something needed to be done to improve reliability if there was going to be a reasonable chance that the N-1 rocket could lift off. Starting in July 1970, Kuznetsov began working on improving the NK-15 engines. For one thing, the manufacturing process would be improved so that every single engine would be test-fired on the ground, not just two out of every six randomly selected engines. But there would also be improvements made to the turbopumps and other parts to improve reliability. The result of all these changes was eventually the NK-33 engine. Now, I am simplifying significantly, but the NK-33 engine perfected one very important technological breakthrough, one that has had a significant impact on rocket engine development today. A closed cycle combustion engine. So let me unpack that. A rocket engine fueled by two liquid propellants, such as the NK-33, which relied on liquid oxygen and kerosene, will have two combustion chambers. One is known as the pre-burner, and the other is known as the main combustion chamber. The main combustion chamber is the one that is right above the giant bell shape that you see at the bottom of a rocket, 
and is normally the combustion chamber being referred to when discussing rocket engines. But there is also a smaller pre-burner chamber. This pre-burner chamber is where a smaller amount of the two propellants will mix and burn to start the turbine, also known as the turbopump. That will start drawing massive amounts of liquid oxygen and kerosene into the main combustion chamber. Now, the pre-burner chamber will only partly combust the propellants, so the exhaust coming from the pre-burner chamber is still quite fuel-rich and can be burned some more to extract more energy. In theory, the exhaust from the pre-burner could even be dumped into the main combustion chamber, which would increase the fuel efficiency and thrust of the rocket engine. In all other engine designs up to this point, however, at least in the United States, the exhaust from the pre-burner was simply dumped into the open air. The reason for this is that the exhaust from the pre-burner is extremely hot. So hot that it will cause most metals to corrode. So, if you try to put the exhaust from the pre-burner into the main combustion chamber, the most likely result is that some part of the rocket engine will fall apart, and the whole engine will collapse. In fact, the use of the pre-burner exhaust as fuel was thought to be so impossible that NASA never even attempted it. But whatever NASA thought, Kuznetsov and his engineers made a breakthrough in metallurgy that made the burning of the pre-burner exhaust in the main combustion chamber possible. This ability improved the efficiency of the NK-33 engine by some 20-25% to 25% and was a remarkably astounding breakthrough. To be clear though, Kuznetsov had used the closed cycle combustion engine model for the older NK-15 version of the engine, but it appears that the design in the NK-15 was not sufficiently advanced enough to be reliable. Hard details about these engines are hard to find in English language sources, but it seems that Kuznetsov was still working out the problems with the closed cycle design in the NK-15. It appears that he still faced metallurgical problems and an uneven burning of the fuel inside the pre-burner that resulted in uneven temperature of the exhaust being routed into the main combustion chamber. These problems combined with poor quality control made the NK-15 engine unreliable. But the NK-33 engine aimed to resolve all of these issues. While these improvements on quality control and the development of the NK-33 were underway, Mission moved ahead to restart test launches of the N-1 in 1971. It is important to note, however, that the testing resumed while the NK-33 was still coming off the production lines in the background. So as Mission resumed testing of the N-1 rocket in 1971, he was still using the older NK-15 engines. And that also meant that the improved quality control procedures, the test firing of all the engines, and the improved turbopumps had not been done for these rockets. Mission appears to have believed that there was some value to continue testing using the older NK-15 engines that had not gone through the improved quality control process and upgrades. And there probably was, and the equipment probably would have just gone to waste otherwise. But in light of the events to come, 
he probably should have waited. The third test of the N1 rocket finally occurred on June 27, 1971. The rocket was set up to carry a mass model of the L-3 spacecraft, rather than an actual spacecraft, since confidence in the rocket was still low. The launch occurred on Launch Pad 2, since the first launch pad had been destroyed by the previous N1 test in July 1969 and had not been rebuilt. Indeed, the Soviet Union had actually given up on the idea of rebuilding Launch Pad 1 and were just building two new launch pads somewhere else at this point. In the meantime, Mishin was using the one remaining launch pad for testing. During the third test, all 30 engines in the N1's first stage successfully ignited together. This was a success, since this was the first time that all of the first stage engines fired together successfully. But the launch would end in another disaster within 48 seconds. Shortly after liftoff, the rocket began to roll. As the roll rate increased, the torque from the roll started to damage the second stage of the rocket. As a result, the cord system, the system controlling all of the first stage engines, shut down all of the first stage engines, and the rocket came tumbling back down. Despite the third consecutive failure of the N1 rocket, Mishin's engineers actually gained confidence. The 30 NK-15 engines in the first stage had fired successfully for once. They were also getting the necessary experience to improve the rocket and make sure it worked next time. Initial analysis suggested that the problems with the N1 rocket could even be resolved within the next six months or so, by January 1972. But the failure came at a terrible time that rocked confidence in the Soviet space program in general. Just three days after the third N1 rocket failure, the three cosmonauts aboard Soyuz 11 died when an air valve opened prematurely in space. The confidence of Mishin's engineers in getting the N1 to work might have been improving, but the government's confidence in Mishin was eroding quickly. And this was going to be a problem soon. Although Mishin had hoped to get the next N1 launch ready by early 1972, that did not happen. Delays inevitably crept in as an investigation had to be performed, the launch pad reset, and modifications to the next N1 were made. By July 1972, however, the plans for the fourth N1 test launch started to take shape. This time, the rocket would carry an actual LOK spacecraft and a mock-up of the LK lander. This change did reflect a bit of an increase in confidence that the N1 wouldn't simply explode. The plan was for the launch to send the LOK spacecraft around the moon to take pictures of potential landing sites. One major point to note, however, is that the fourth N1 test would still use the old NK-15 engines, not the newer NK-33 engines that went through improvements and better quality control. The fourth N1 rocket finally lifted off on November 23, 1972. 
This N1 rocket flew longer and further than any prior N1. But still, 104 seconds after liftoff, an explosion in one of the first stage rocket engines tore the launch vehicle to pieces. The only upside was that the emergency rocket tower at the top of the launch vehicle had managed to pull the LOK spacecraft away to safety. Despite the N1's failure, Mission was actually very nearly there. The first stage of the rocket had failed just 7 seconds before it was to shut down, and the second stage was to start. 7 seconds. That seemed to be all that had separated them between success and failure. The downfall of Vasily Mission and the cancellation of the entire N1L3 moon landing effort. In 1973, after four consecutive failed launches of the N1 rocket, confidence in Mission hit rock bottom. The Soviet Union had suffered a series of humiliating setbacks and disappointments in space under his tenure. Since he took over from Korolev in 1966, the Soviet Union had suffered the first fatality of any astronaut or cosmonaut during a mission in April 1967 when Vladimir Komarov died in Soyuz 1 after it crashed on the ground. Mishin then failed to finish man-rating the L-1 spacecraft for a manned circumlunar flight before the 50th anniversary of the Soviet Revolution in October 1967. As I discussed in episode 55, this was a big deal. Korolev's ability to deliver on space spectaculars for Soviet celebrations was one way he had earned political currency for his other projects. Mishin lost that opportunity to earn much-needed political capital when NASA succeeded in the first manned lunar orbital mission with Apollo 8 in December 1968. After Apollo 8, the Soviet government simply lost interest in the L-1 circumlunar program altogether. In October 1968, the Soviet Union suffered another setback under Mishin's tenure. When Soyuz 2 and Soyuz 3 failed in their main mission objective of docking, in January 1969, the Soviet Union finally achieved a docking between Soyuz 4 and Soyuz 5. But then this mission nearly ended in disaster when the service module to Soyuz 5 failed to detach before re-entry. A factor that nearly led to Boris Volonov burning up during re-entry. In October 1969, partly as a response to Apollo 11, the Soviet Union launched Soyuz 6, 7, and 8 in the Troika flight. But the main mission objective of docking between two of the spacecraft failed. Though the Soviet Union publicly claimed that docking was not part of the mission, the lie was obvious and only underlined the humiliation that at least some part of the Soviet government felt about the performance of the space program. Then came the failures of the Salyut-1 station in 1971. The first crew sent to man the space station on Soyuz 10 in April 1971 couldn't even dock with the space station. The second crew from Soyuz 11 made it into the space station and utilized it, but then the mission ended with all three cosmonauts dying during re-entry. 
add on top of all of this, Mission's failure to get a second Soviet space station into orbit before the American Skylab space station. The Soviet government's growing lack of confidence in Mission after this fourth failure of the N-1 rocket must be read in the light of this history. Now, as I've emphasized before, the setbacks and failures were not all Mishin's fault. He was working with poor funding and had to repeatedly fend off challenges from other engineers like Vladimir Chelemy, who wanted to take over aspects of manned spaceflight, like the manned circumlunar flight program. All this, however, does not appear to have been the reason for Mishin's eventual downfall. Mishin had overseen many failed projects and missions before, so there was no particular reason why the fourth N1 rocket test would be the straw that broke the camel's back. No, what led to Mishin's downfall was his own engineers and designers turning against him. In 1973, Mishin's own engineers and designers wrote a letter to the Council of Ministers and Dmitry Ustinov, the Secretary for Defense Industries and Space, urging that Mishin be fired as chief designer. If you'll recall, Ustinov had generally favored Korolev, and then his successor Mishin over the likes of rival engineers like Vladimir Chelemy. But this letter from Mishin's own subordinates appears to have fractured the confidence in Mishin. So why did Mishin's subordinates turn against him? The reasoning is a little fuzzy, but it appears to go back to the space station program which I mentioned last time. Certain lead engineers, like Konstantin Fyaktistov, appear to have preferred that the engineering bureau focus on developing a space station. Now, if Fyaktistov's name sounds familiar, that's because he was an engineer who flew on Vashad 1. And he had been one of Korolev's leading protégés. Engineers like Fyaktistov appear to have taken the view that the future of the Soviet space program lay in the mastery of Earth orbital operations and space stations. Mishin, on the other hand, considered the Soviet government's focus on space stations to be a distraction. Mishin's focus was on a moon landing. Mishin had spent a significant part of his life working on the N1-L3 moon landing program, and there was something to be said about completing the life work of his mentor, Sergei Korolev. So, as I mentioned last time, in 1972, Mishin had come to an agreement with Chelemy to transfer the future of the Soviet Union's space station program to Chelemy. This would allow Mishin to redirect his engineers to the moon landing program, something that some of his engineers disliked. This appears to have been what led to the letter in 1973 asking for Mishin's removal as chief designer. Still, this letter in 1973 did not result in Mishin's immediate removal. Throughout 1973 and into early 1974, Mishin continued to prepare for a fifth N1 rocket test. This next test would use Kuznetsov's upgraded NK-33 engines. But 
understandably, there was some concern about the reliability of Kuznetsov's engines after four consecutive failures. After all, the NK-15 engine had been under development for about 10 years and still wasn't reliable. Questions arose as to why the new NK-33 engine would be any more reliable. These questions about the reliability of Kuznetsov's engines came to have an impact on the investigation into the cause of the fourth failed N1 launch. The investigation strongly suggested that the rocket had failed due to an explosion in one of the first stage NK-15 engines. But Kuznetsov rejected this conclusion. Kuznetsov feared that his NK-33 engine could be cancelled if blame for the fourth failed test rested on his NK-15 engine. Kuznetsov insisted instead that the rocket failure had been caused by the sudden shutdown of the six NK-15 engines in the central ring of the first stage. The shutdown of the central six engines was part of the rocket's flight plan. The engines were shut down as the rocket prepared to switch over to the second stage. Kuznetsov's theory was that the sudden shutdown of the six central engines caused fuel to suddenly back up into the pipes, leading to hydraulic shock, which caused some of the fuel lines to burst. In this view, this was what led to the failure of the fourth N1 rocket. Mishin was likewise aware that Kuznetsov's NK-33 engines could be cancelled. Indeed, he was aware that the entire N1 rocket program could be cancelled altogether after four consecutive failures. So, to save the N1 and the engines, Mishin accepted the theory that the primary cause of failure during the fourth test was the sudden shutoff of the six central engines. As a result, in his report, Mishin recommended that for the next launch, the six central engines should be throttled down gradually to prevent hydraulic shock. Now, perhaps because of the growing lack of confidence in Mishin, as well as the loss of support from Mishin's own engineers, when Dmitry Ustinov received Mishin's recommendation, he referred it to other prominent chief designers and engineers to evaluate the proposal. And among those reviewing were Valentin Glushko. The resulting review of the recommendation was scathingly negative. Glushko and the other designers and engineers pointed out that even assuming that the central premise of the recommendation was correct, that the failed fourth test was due to hydraulic shock rather than an exploding first stage engine, there was no data for how throttling down the six central engines would affect flight. The only way to do this was to test it during flight, which meant potentially another failed launch if they were wrong. Which they probably were because the problem was probably an exploding first stage engine. Glushko then took the opportunity to simply rail against the N1 rocket and said Kuznetsov's engines were doomed to fail. The precise details of what happens next is a little bit unclear, 
but the end result is not. On May 22, 1974, Vasily Mishin was dismissed as chief designer. In his place, Valentin Glushko was named as general designer. Not only that, the engineering bureau that Sergei Korolev had built and that Vasily Mishin had inherited would be dissolved and combined with other space-related organizations to create one single entity. The Energia Scientific Production Association, of which Glushko would now be the new director. Energia, under Glushko's direction, would now be responsible for developing all Soviet-piloted spacecraft, launch vehicles, satellites, rocket engines, and manufacturing for all of the above. Glushko had accumulated more power over the Soviet space industry than Korolev ever had. Glushko, it seems, had won the long feud between him and Korolev. Eight years after his rival's death, Glushko now controlled everything Korolev once had and more. After Glushko took over, the N1L3 program was canceled. He terminated all development of the N1 rocket, the L3 spacecraft complex, and the L3M for advanced lunar landing missions. Curiously, though, this did not mean that Glushko had no interest in the moon. In fact, in October 1974, he prepared his own proposal for the Soviet Union to build a lunar base called Zvedda. His proposed moon landing mission, however, was never approved. A commission led by Mstislav Keldish concluded that it was too complicated. And in any event, Soviet leadership was disinterested. Instead, Leonid Brezhnev would direct Glushko's efforts toward the creation of a Soviet space shuttle, known as the Buran, in direct response to the American space shuttle program. In victory, Glushko came off as being more than a little spiteful. He did not simply cancel the N1L3 program. He ordered the destruction of all of Nikolay Kuznetsov's work and all of the NK-33 engines, which, due to the cancellation of the fifth N1 test, had never been flown before. But Kuznetsov is the one who would get the last laugh. Kuznetsov defied Glushko's order and managed to hide some 94 NK-33 engines in a warehouse. These engines were hidden until after the collapse of the Soviet Union. After that, rumors began to circulate that Russia had a supply of very efficient rocket engines. Private American rocket companies began investigating and soon sourced these engines for commercial rocket launches in the United States. In fact, some of these legacy engines were used to power an Antares rocket launched from Wallops Island, Virginia as recently as 2013. And as for Energia, the space industry empire that Glushko took over in 1974, that entity still exists today, and it is Russia's leading manufacturer of spacecraft components. And its official name today is not simply Energia.
It is Sergei Pavlovich Korolev Rocket and Space Corporation Energia. So it would seem that perhaps Glushko did not win the feud after all. So this does finally bring us to an end of the space race, but not quite the end of the podcast. I will close with two more episodes. For the next episode, I will discuss what the space race means and what Kennedy called a test of the systems. And for the final episode, I will conclude with an epilogue.